1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 46th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is You Are What You Do. I'm joined by David G. White Jr., the author of Disrupting Corporate Culture, How Cognitive Science Alters Accepted Beliefs About Culture and Culture Change and Its Impact on Leaders and Change Agents. The publisher is Routledge. David is a cognitive anthropologist working with organizations on culture, change, and leadership issues. He's a co-founder of Antos Global, a boutique consulting firm. David previously held leadership roles at Microsoft, Mercer, and IBM. Besides having also co-founded an HR technology company, David is notable for being a professional jazz musician with seven CDs to his credit. Welcome to the show, David.
0: Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me.
1: appreciate it. Absolutely looking forward to this conversation. So give us a brief overview of uh, what your book is about.
0: The book is about um, the... uh, Trying to bring some science and some a little bit of rigor to this topic of corporate culture, which has been uh, extremely popular and well written about over the last thirty years, but um, ironically little understood, and (laughs) um, and that is because uh, there's a lot of sort of urban myth and urban legend about culture. Uh, It's a field dominated by uh, consultants and executives who you know have w- good intentions to uh, you know turn their companies uh, into successful and profitable enterprises, and they see culture as the vehicle for that. But um, there's not a lot of science uh, uh, in that field. And what's been happening outside of the world of business in fields like cultural neuroscience and cognitive anthropology and cognitive sociology and linguistics and other related fields um, is, with respect to culture, has been very exciting. A lot of exciting. Things have happened over the last 30 years. Very few of those um, advances in the science and the literature and those fields has seeped down into the world of business and corporate culture. So this book is an attempt to bridge that gap.
1: Okay. So I'm going to start really big picture. I had a guest on recently talking about what she dubbed the the feeling economy, which was a different way of looking at Mm -hmm. the fourth industrial revolution. She was arguing that with the advances in AI, artificial intelligence, Uh, thinking will be taken over more by the algorithms and the machines and feeling is something human beings are going to have to look at. Uh, you got your own take on what the fourth industrial revolution is going to look like and what it's going to mean for us, particularly in context of corporate culture. Can you describe why our current understanding of corporate culture is so inadequate to the challenges ahead?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure that thinking will ever be completely replaced by machines. Maybe I'm just a Luddite that way. But uh as I say in the book, um the, the advent of the fourth industrial revolution puts um frontline managers um on the forefront of change and transformation of their organizations like never before. Uh the the tax on the, the, the emotional and psychological tax on leaders in organizations as they try to transform their industrial companies into digital companies or their um you know their uh retail e-commerce companies into logistics companies etc etc is is just uh, you know the change the magnitude of the change is astounding with technologies uh that bring um you know you know the merging of of the brain and the somatics with um uh, with censoring devices, with chips, uh, you know, the chips on everything, including chips in, in animals like cows. I mean, the convergence of these various different technologies is astounding. So the pressure on humans in organizations is really significant. Um, so this puts culture at the forefront of um, of those who are interested in transforming their organizations. And uh, that's the argument I make in the book. It's, it's now more than ever, you know, the the need to understand and work with culture is never been greater yet the tools and understanding has never been uh never been less you know or again because of these myths and urban legends about what culture is
1: okay so i'm going to go into the the solutions or the the uh, progression of that in a moment but i i think we'll start with the status quo and why we have these limitations on us right now so in particular you mentioned five myths uh culture starts at the top culture is a physical thing one company, one culture. Culture is what we say we care about, and culture is employee well-being. So, we probably want to dive at least a little bit into two or three of those at a minimum. I'm going to start with the fourth one. Culture is what we say we care about because actually, an upcoming guest has a chapter on culture, uh, written by uh, people who are you know in the been in the corner suite and so forth, and they talk a lot about stated values and then trying to model those values um why is that fourth myth so pernicious
0: yeah this is actually very very good that you mentioned that because this is a very common refrain that executives make if we just model the values that we want somehow by osmosis they will trickle down through the organization magically Uh, first off let me just begin by saying there's no there's no literature in the hundred years of anthropology uh, anthropology studying anthropologists studying culture there's no support for the idea that leaders somehow set the culture or that culture can be modeled by behavior. Uh, no society in millennia has uh, a recording or is, has there been a uh, evidence of that being the case? It seems to be something that's been invented by consultants and executives to espouse or or, or uh, extend the espoused set of values that they hold for themselves and perhaps wishfully for their company. There's nothing wrong with with wanting to Make your organization you know, molded in your own in your own image or leave a legacy of goodness and such that you might you know, want to um, say we should all be this way or that way based on you know, the values that we hold or that I hold as a as a, as a chief executive. Um, but it is it's myth. It's it's first off, uh, very, it's very difficult to Im- impose one's values on another. Um generally speaking, a community's values. Uh, a social community's values when they align with that of a leader's, um, what happens is the values are already in place to begin with. So for example, um, if you are a uh, engineer and you become chief executive of an organization, but you've grown up as a software engineer and you run a software engineering business, it's very likely that your values are going to align with those of the organization. Um, but that is much more a feature of of um, the professionalization of the executive and of the organization itself. So it's very hard to impose values. It's very hard to impose norms unless they're already pre-existing in the population. Um, so the the main the, the main idea is that this is a an urban myth that has been per, uh, per, uh, perpetrated by executives to try to make their companies more um, more aligned for uh, for 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 profit and for good, uh, or ostensibly for good. Remember, culture was really an invention. Um, the construct was invented by, uh, it came out of the theory Y thinkings of uh, Douglas McGregor at MIT in the late 1970s. The theory Y being, of course, the antidote to theory X, which was the idea that humans are essentially unmotivated creatures and need to be driven and controlled. This was the, the, the feature of, this was the, the common wisdom of organizational behavior dating back to 1900 and Frederick Taylor. And Doug McGregor came along and said, no, you know, humans are essentially um, creative. We are are creative creatures. We have infinite capacity to to learn and grow. And so the the role of the manager is to just create an environment where that's enabled in organizations. And so from that theory, why idea sprung this, this idea of corporate culture, which really was an invention borrowed from the social sciences to try to uh, teach executives or give, impart this idea to executives that if they just create the right environment for their organizations, great things will follow. And so this is where we, where we are. This is why we are where we are today.
1: Sure. So it sounds like we've, we've hit on at least two of those myths, which is culture starts at the top, and then you know, culture is what we say we care about. Uh, you had three other ones. Culture is a physical thing, one company, one culture, and culture is employee well-being. You want to choose just maybe one of those three to go after?
0: Um, sure. the 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 culture's employee well being is also a common common refrain. Um, uh, the other two are relatively straightforward to understand, but this idea that somehow culture is how people feel um, is 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 there's also no support for that in in the literature. Um, certainly, how people feel relates to culture in some way, as it relates to leadership in some way, but it's not a linear uh algorithm it's not it's not a plus b equals c often the way people feel in an organization could be a reaction to a a deeper more pervasive cultural uh, phenomena as much as it could be an expression of it Um, so for example we have a client uh here in the san francisco bay area a tech company that um uh talks about and values collaboration and and wants people to be collaborative and wants them to feel part of a team. And also, it's always espousing this idea of teamwork. Um, and wants you know, essentially that that um, attitude to pervade through the organization. In our research there, we found that that teamwork idea is actually a reaction to or compensation for something much deeper in the culture, which is this idea of craft. Um, it's, a, it's a tech company dominated by engineers and data scientists. And the value of craft is as in yeah, being really good at what you do. Uh, you know, having craft, having high craft is a dominant, um, what we call a dominant logic in the organization. And um, people will collaborate with you in the organization and work with you if you're good at what you do. But if you're not respected and you're not considered, you know, top in, on top of your game, you tend to be shunned and ignored socially. So the idea of teamwork is kind of a compensation for collaborations and a compensation for this deeper idea of craft. And this happens a lot in organizations.
1: no, I I like that a lot. That was going to be one of my questions later on about some best case examples or drill down to specifics. So I I like that. Uh, Besides going after The Mist, you also, uh, by name uh, and by title, you go after some some books that have been preeminent in this field of the the culture industry. But there's one that you actually like, and that is uh, Ed Sheen's Organizational Culture and Leadership book from 1992. Uh, why does that one stand out to you as as better than the others?
0: Well, Ed Ed's work is 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 you know legendary in the organization development and culture field, and and um, what Ed Schein, uh was writing about uh, actually er, even earlier than the early '90s, really in the in the mid '80s, um, was uh, he was bringing the idea that culture really is a set of what he calls basic assumptions. And that's very much in line with the cognitive science of culture and the, the, the last 30 years of researching culture, which I mentioned earlier, because what cognitive anthropologists know about culture is that culture is knowledge. So culture is basically background knowledge. It's the metaphor I use is it's a, it's the operating system. It's not the apps. And what that means basically is that it runs in the backgrounds. Cognitively speaking, we know a, a lot of culture or, or cultures because we personally inhabit Many different cultures. Uh, cognitive anthropologists call this a reference system. They call c- culture basically as a reference system, a system of meaning and knowledge that we draw from. But mostly we draw from it tacitly or implicitly, preconsciously, to make sense and orient ourselves in the world as needed. Um, so the best example, you know, is how do you know when you walk into an elevator not to look at people in the eye? How do you know that? Where do you learn that? It's not taught anywhere. Uh, so how do you know what to do when you land at a airport in a foreign city? In terms of how to hail a taxi, back in the days when we were flying, um, how do you know how to do that? Right. Well, uh, and sometimes when you land in a foreign city in some place, for example, in Africa, uh, and you walk out into the uh, into the street to find a taxi, and you are befuddled and bewildered because there's, you know, what you thought you knew about how that goes sure. doesn't work at all. It's the system of meaning and the system of knowledge vis-a-vis hailing taxis is completely different. So the point is, culture is background knowledge that we use as appropriate to make sense of our worlds. And so this idea of what what does that knowledge consist of? It consists of essentially basic assumptions, basic beliefs, uh, idealizations. Um, I call those in my book, um, dominant logics, just because the word logic uh, tends to make a little bit more sense to business people. But uh, cultural anthropologists call these, um, or cognitive anthropologists call these schemas, uh, basically pre-verbal in, uh, bits of knowledge that we use to make sense of the world and um, that run essentially in the background. And so Ed was onto it early on um, by calling these things basic assumptions. And, and uh, that's, that's been a very um, powerful uh, way to get at this idea of, of uh, reference systems.
1: Okay, well, he must indeed been onto it pretty quickly because you mentioned all these developments and additional learnings over the last 30 years, and his book is now about 20 years old. Yeah. Um, so, so what are some of those learnings from, from neuroscience and from cultural anthropology, uh, as a cognitive anthropologist, any, anything you want to kind of bring in that most is, is uh, important here that should be really uh, f- foregrounded in our discussion?
0: Sure. Well, if you just to build on the idea, if culture is knowledge, culture is you know bits of of uh, assumptions and beliefs and idealizations and rationalizations that run in the background. Then you know the first thing is to think of culture in any organization as really a collection of reference systems or collections of of um, background knowledges. Where does that knowledge come from? That would be the first question. Well, it comes from. It tends to come from uh, two sources in organizations. One I mentioned already. One is the professionalization of any dominant group so you know software engineers and software companies actuaries and insurance companies um, doctors and hmos etc any any dominant professional group in an organization will tend to impart its reference system or its its, its background knowledge to that organization so that that organization starts to have a belief system and a set of assumptions that are sort of the de facto, uh, rules of thumb and, and implicit logics uh, related to that profession. The other source of uh, of knowledge in organizations, background cultural knowledge in organizations, comes from uh, orga- the organization successfully overcoming a difficult challenge. And you see this again and again and again. Organizations that have successfully mastered complexities or challenges in their environment, especially if they're existential challenges. You know, companies that had to do incredible things to sur- even survive, or they solve the very hard technical problem, the values and the knowledge and the beliefs associated with that successful um, experience or successful product or successful event in their history will tend to, be, will tend to become dominant as, as bits of logic in the cultural reference system of the organization. Um, so, And there's tons of examples of this. One of the examples that I use is that's um, very close to home as I was at Microsoft for many years. Microsoft, of course, invented the operating system. Um, and this is back, predates me, but the invention of the operating system, the technical um, prowess involved in doing so, and the creation of basically the platform um, for products, other software products, to be built on top of that idea of platform, that metaphor platform pervades or pervaded the Microsoft culture um, when I was there such that the idea of platform was just dominant in everything that, that the company did. So it was, it was a dominant logic. Um, software groups, software teams would actually create um, software such that even if they were, if this is example a team that was just creating software for a printer driver, they would see their driver as a platform or a basis for other teams to base their code on so the idea of kind of platform pervades the organization now that that might be kind of an obscure idea but it comes directly from this uh, this concept of microsoft having basically created the operating system or the platform for computers to run on so it's it's a it pervades a, a successful a meaningful and successful experience tends to in part um cultural schemas or logics to people in groups such that that becomes then the uh, the baseline idea or the baseline heuristic for seeing the world.
1: Okay, and then isn't a third one, and maybe I, I'm wrong here and you can correct me in a moment, but when we had our preliminary conversation, you were also talking about uh, neural pathways and how they form due to the fact that we are indeed very physical beings. We have physical habits, which yeah. is why we have the title we we have for this episode. That we are what we do uh, which reminds me of course of uh of uh our book the saddest uh-huh. made a joke on you know you are what you eat mm-hmm. and he changed it to you are where you eat thinking about the lobbyist on k street yeah exactly. but let's let's go back to you are what you do because it seems to me this might be the third leg of this stool besides the kind of professional point of view and that challenge to overcome that informs the dominant logic going forward in a company
0: well, no, it's a it's a great it's a great point, Dan. Because actually, the the that you are what you do is what enables uh, these examples that I've just been giving you to actually happen. The reason why professionalization tends to dominate a, a culture, or why um, a meaningful, successful experience of the collective tends to dominate, is because the habits and routines, the the things we do all day long, physically and and mentally, do all day long, indeed shape how we think. Um, And so if we have spent, you know, a year solving a hard technology problem with a, with a, with a software product or fix the difficult, solve the difficult um, customer problem, you know, in pumping water, pumping wastewater, um, that the, the, the habits and routines and practices associated with, with creating that solution will tend to spread throughout the population. And the reason for that is because the, the actual neurochemical processes involved in doing that work and succe- doing it successfully um, will, in part, will create neural pathways in the collective brains of those humans doing that work, which will then spread throughout the organization through a process called spreading activation, which then allows essentially that knowledge to be um, shared and distributed and become kind of a de facto logic or the de facto standard for how we, how we do things around here. Um, it comes directly from the work that organizations do, and this is also why you know you see you know uh, software companies are much more alike than industrial companies, you know retail product companies are much more like each other than they are HMOs, um, companies with in industries are much more like each other than than not, and this is why it's difficult if you have an industrial company that says it wants to become the next Apple or Google, that is actually quite difficult to do because unless they change what they actually do all day long. That won't, that won't happen.
1: Sure. So the, these habits and routines that establish uh, neural pathways for us, how is that? I'm not trying to play devil's advocate, but yeah. we often hear the the phrase, you know, talk the talk, or you're going know, to walk the walk. How, yeah. how does this move us down the path of walk the walk?
0: Well, it gets at one, it gets at why cultures are so hard to change. So you mentioned in all these popular books, um, you know, over the last 30 years, um, in fact, you know, successful managed culture change is very rare. It's very, there's very little support um, even in the business literature for, you know a company that successfully changed its culture unless it was on the brink of, 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 of death, right? I mean, so one of the reasons why it's so hard is because in order to change neurochemical pathways if you think about cultures in the brain and culture is what you do, while well, to change the neurochemical processes of the collective uh, there's only one, really one way you can do that. You can't tell people to change. <laughs> um, you have to change habits. You have to change routines or what I call in the book practices. Practices are habits, routines, processes, formal and informal. And that's very difficult to do. The other common myth that I don't write about in the book, but happens a lot, is that organizations tend to think of culture as a problem for the HR department, or it's a people problem. Or if we just hire different people, we'll get different culture, et cetera, um, which is also not true. Um, the the what's, what's, what's difficult about culture change is that in order to actually change these neural pathways of the collective, you have to change what you do all day long. You have to change the habits, the routines of the organization. And that includes things like how you allocate resources, how you set budgets, how you plan, how you go to market, how you develop and design products, how you think about products to begin with. Um, it includes all the domain of people, stuff like how you hire and promote and develop people. And it includes a whole realm of social acceptance, you know, how you, how you think, how you manage conflict, how you make people feel accepted or not accepted, you know, the sort of normative environment. All of those are habits, all of those involve habits and routines that are quite difficult to change because why? Because culture is essentially a, an evolutionary adaptive response to the environment and companies, um, that were successful, that are successful, have strong cultures that are there to begin with because the company was successful in adapting to its environment. So the the actual habits and routines are expressions of these dominant logics that are there to begin with because the company mastered a, a problem or a dominant occupational group brought those values to the organization. So it's very hard to change that unless you're highly motivated to do so.
1: Um, so what you just raised, which is fascinating, uh, brings me to two maybe follow-ons. One is I want to make sure I understand uh, something because we just talked about habits and routines and practices, and this is very physical. And yet one of your myths is indeed culture is a physical thing. So what's the separation line?
0: Yeah, that refers to our, our tendency as humans to think in analogy. So one of the features of one of the great features of the human brain is that we tend to make sense of one thing in terms of another. So we are, our thinking is fundamentally analogical. Um, and so we tend to think, you know, think for example, of uh, mergers and acquisitions, we tend to characterize mergers as fighting or mating or marriage, right? Most abstractions in the world, the economy, society are made sense of or thought of collectively in reference to something physical or tangible. And this is pretty well established in the neuroscience uh, uh, over the last 20, 30 years. So um, with respect to culture, we tend to think of culture as a physical thing. How often do you hear phrases like, put it in the culture, or our culture doesn't allow us to do that, or our culture is very um, marketing oriented, et cetera, as if the culture is a physical or human thing. But the question I ask is, where is that culture? Can you you touch it? Yeah. Can you, can you touch the culture, Dan? Can you, you know, and, and the problem with thinking of it's very common to think of it in that way. And there's nothing wrong with it. Cause it's, again, it's a, it's a feature of human cognition, but the problem with thinking about culture as a physical thing is that it leads us then to think of it as a dependent variable. So if we can just sort of manipulate the culture, put something into it, out will come a desired behavior or desired response. And that is a, that's, that's a fallacy. It's an attribution error that leads many many companies astray and waste you know millions of dollars and and hours and thousands of hours of people's time and resources and energy it's it's well well uh well intended but misguided
1: sure and there is indeed a lot of waste you mentioned one point in the book that on average, companies spend about $2,000 plus per employee per year on managing culture. And I can yeah. attest from my time in corporate life that uh, it does not work. I've not seen it work. Um, yeah. One other follow-up I had, because you kind of mentioned, I think, these these categories. And in fact, as you talked about practices, and there were six categories, and I'll just repeat, I think this overlaps with what you just covered a moment ago, planning, management reporting, customer, product, people, and social acceptance. Those were the six um you know hate to make it a really simplified question yeah. but is there maybe one of those in your experience that is most important is really the tipping point that can can drive or determine the outcome to maybe get us one of those rare elusive success stories
0: well yeah, I don't mean to, I don't mean to be glib, but um, uh, the answer, of course, is it depends. And, uh, <laughs> Naturally. And it, and, it, and no, but seriously, a lot of yes. it depends on the context of the organization. It's yep. you know what it's trying to do. One of the things that I write about in the book, it would be extremely destabilizing for any CEO or leadership team to try to alter all six of those practice areas all at the same time. It would, okay. be, it would probably be disastrous for the organization unless unless the organization was in kind of a massive turnaround mode and it needed to do radical things you know quickly but um the question i you know for, this gets us into kind of the how do you approach culture change kind of on the ground um the question i always ask my clients is you know where are the highest leverage points um where do you really where where would a change in practice make it make the biggest difference in the short term um and that gets into um that that's a business decision there's no right answer that's a business decision it's also a little bit of a of a normative decision because when you're embarked on culture change, you also want to um, have some sense of quick wins such that the organization can start to see that meaningful change, meaningful positive change is happening in the the desired direction. uh, And sometimes making very visible changes in practices, i.e. changes to practices that are highly visible, like, for example, how you uh, you know, do your monthly business reviews, for example, which involve lots, often in organizations involve lots of people and lots of time and lots of energy preparing reports about the business, you know, for upper management, you know, making changes to practices like that could have a high leverage impact. If you want to become more entrepreneurial, more streamlined, more faster moving, more agile, you know, reducing the amount of bureaucratic sclerosis in organizations sure. um, could have a big impact. And so going after practices that are embody that or that manifests that could be could be significant.
1: Okay. No, that strikes me as fair. So you're looking for quick wins. You're looking for something that's a visible win to help build momentum. And then you still have to get back to what might be the real the one thing that's the best lever to get to the change you most hope for or need to have as a as a company. So before we end here, I want to go to the CEOs that's been implicit in a few of the uh, answers yeah. you've given. And you do mention in the book that one of the other hindrances here besides these five myths is executive overconfidence. Yeah. And it seems to me when you talk about the key qualities of future leaders, you mentioned four self-awareness, psychological flexibility, uh, curiosity, and courage. And you mentioned someone I really respect, Harari, the uh Israeli uh historian who really puts the emphasis on psychological flexibility. Yeah. Uh, do you do likewise, or what is meant by psychological flexibility?
0: Yeah, it's a great question because um when you start to intervene in your own culture and you start to look at you know changing practices just just to pick up on your last example again um quickly and i've seen this happen many many times with executive teams quickly you get into um this kind of sense of collective executive guilt where they feel that perhaps you know it's their fault (laughs) that the organization has these practices it's their fault that the organization is where it is, and then and that that becomes a, a bit of a barrier to change in and of itself. Um, uh, most executives I've worked with, you know, want to do the right thing for their organizations. They they mean well. Uh, a lot of what they have put in place is well intended, um, but the psychological flexibility that Harari speaks about is critical here because you need to be able to have as a as a leader the self awareness to understand. What is you and what is yours and what is not yours? Uh, In other words, what what is the boundary between you and the organization, the psychological boundary, the emotional boundary? And that requires a a healthy amount of self-awareness, self-esteem, and humility to be able to enact the kinds of changes, the kind of practice changes, some of them which may be targeted at practices that you yourself put in place or have been responsible for in some form at some point uh, in the past and being able to sort of unwind that or change that, or, uh, uh, you know, as, uh, make sure that, um, new practices can be put in place that necessarily, um, that maybe actually, um, rewrites of old habits can be very difficult. I mean, how many times do we want to admit that we were wrong? How many times do we want to admit that, um, you know, this is not working. Uh, so the humility, the, the the awareness, the self-awareness, the flexibility, the, the, the emotional and psychological flexibility to kind of think differently. Uh, and as we say in our practice also, you know hold multiple realities in your head at the same time about possibilities and about the past and about the future becomes very critical. I know that all sounds rather abstract, um, but it is actually very critical for, when you think about executive teams who are embarking on culture change, if they don't have some of these attributes, it becomes exceedingly difficult as you could imagine.
1: Yeah, no, I think what we're what I'm picking up here is there's the the larger environment of the uh, company culture, then there's the micro environment, the microclimate, and uh, between the two years of the executive teams, yeah, uh, that three and a half pound universe called the brain, um, <laughs> and you're going to have to go after both of those to make this thing work. I, I want to thank you, David, so much for your time. There's a lot more we could explore in this book, uh, but I thank you for being my guest here on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Uh, This has been episode number 46, You Are What You Do. My guest has been David G. White, Jr. He is the author of Disrupting Corporate Culture, How Cognitive Science Alters Accepted Beliefs About Culture and Culture Change and Its Impact on Leaders and Change Agents. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. To check out other episodes, you can go to my company's website at www.sensorylogic.com. Or to the New Books Network's website, where you can find uh, this podcast under its special series programs. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In light of today's topic, I've chosen a quote from Michael Cooley. He is a World Bank fellow and former Harvard University professor who said of culture the culture of a company is a sum of the behaviors of all of its people. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.